We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. So uh, what I'm going to uh, speak about today is really just the, the, the what we say, the, the Easter season properly so-called. So not going past the ascension. I'll make a few references to that. And um, there are a lot of people who write uh, and talk about the liturgy and, and take uh, an attitude towards it to sort of treat it as a collection of mistakes and accidents and say that the ancient people who created it were acting very haphazardly and didn't realize what they were doing and didn't pay close attention and so arranged a lot of things badly, chose things badly, etc. Um, I think that this is a very, very unhealthy attitude to take because it's really sort of demolishing and deconstructing our own tradition. And, um, and the reason why I thought today would be the perfect day to do this is we have one of the best examples uh, of that thing that uh, something that, that kind of provokes this sort of critique, which is that today we have the Sunday of the paralytic, so where we uh, the gospel um, which is taken from the fifth chapter of St. John. Next Sunday we will have the Sunday of the Samaritan woman, which is taken from chapter four. And so people will say, oh, you know, gosh, why do you read it out of order? That makes no sense. That's silly. Why do you do that? And so part of this talk will be based on explaining that there's actually a very good and very interesting reason. And if you really pay very close attention to the liturgical text of any rite, what you discover is that this is like this unbelievably complex and very finely calibrated machine with all of these very, very subtle interactions between this feast day and that feast day, this Sunday and that Sunday, um, and this season in particular is one of the most beautiful examples of that. So, um, uh, Father mentioned a couple of, two Sundays ago, because yes, we do pay attention to the homily sometimes, but, um, on St. Thomas Sunday, how in the Byzantine Rite, every Sunday is a commemoration of the resurrection. And those of us who are not of Eastern European or Eastern Mediterranean descent, probably had the experience of inviting friends to come to the Byzantine church. And one of the things they might notice about that is every Sunday, this is, there is almost never an exception to this. Um, of course, it's the Byzantine rite, so there's always an exception, but there's almost never an exception that we have a commemoration of the resurrection. We sing our resurrectional tropar and contact um, in the chants before the epistle. And um, at the very end, when the priest gives the final blessing, um, the opening words of it on Sunday are, Christ, our true God, who is risen from the dead, etc. But in um, the original language, which is, of course, Church Slavonic, um, and, you know, the Greeks stole it from them, translated it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the, um, the, the words, who is risen from the dead, are actually the opening words of that. So... Um, and then you also have Vespers and Orthros, where you have this just mountain of texts 
meditating on the resurrection. And so the, the, the book, which we call the Octo Echos, um, there are actually so many that the Greeks, you know, this is a real thing in, in liturgical history that very often the people that receive the tradition from somewhere else will just keep it as they receive it and then it changes back home where it came from. And so the Greeks have actually split up the book which, which in the Slavic tradition we still have as the single book called the Octo Echos. And they just took all the Sunday bits out and put it into a single book um, and gave it a fancy name. It's called the Anastasmatarion. So, um, because it's so much, they figured, well, we'll just put this all in one book for convenience sake. So, um, and, and as part of that, we also have our series of resurrection gospels on Sunday uh, at Orthros. Um, uh, with Renia, we have the cycle of 11 resurrection gospels. We go through all of the accounts from all four evangelists. This is an incredibly ancient thing that the Church of Byzantium actually adopted from the Rite of Jerusalem a very, very long time ago. So, um, so then if you invite your non-Byzantine friends to Byzantine Church on Easter Sunday, um, they might say, so which gospel of the resurrection will we hear today? on Easter. Oh, no, we don't, we don't read the resurrection on Easter. So, oh, you, what, what gospel do you read? Well, we read the beginning of St. John on Easter. Yeah, we read the beginning of St. John on Easter. So, not the end, the part where he rises from the dead. Yeah, we read the beginning. So, <laughs> so, and I say this because this is exactly the kind of thing which you know, those of a more skeptical bent would say, oh gosh, well that makes no sense, we should change it, that's stupid. Okay? Now there's actually an extremely good reason for all of these things. Um, in the Byzantine Rite, the Vigil Liturgy, which we celebrate on the eve of Holy Saturday, with its, you know, there's very, very beautiful chants and the 15 prophecies that you know, seem to cover the entire Bible. Um, we, uh, uh, of course, and then after the readings, it becomes the Divine Liturgy of St. Basil. And, and that liturgy is supposed to be read and understood together with the liturgy of Easter Sunday itself. They form a unit. And on the vigil, the first, the, the, the epistle, which would be reading number 16 if you take them all together, um, is taken from St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. And because that is the baptismal liturgy par excellence, um, the passage that is chosen includes the word, as Christ is risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also may walk in newness of life. And then it says um, further on, Christ rising again from the dead dieth now no more, death shall no more have dominion over him. Shall, so we're looking towards the future. So, um, for in that he died to sin, he died once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And so now that is the point at which once that reading is done, the curtains are closed, if you have and use curtains. Um, and then um, a lot of churches, we used to do this in Rome, where, um, the, everybody goes into the sacristy and changes into white. And then we come out and redecorate the church and put out the flowers and put out the white um, covers for the Analoia. Um, and in the meantime, the choir is singing, Arise, O God. It judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So arise, we're giving him, you know, it's an imperative form, looking forward to what happens tomorrow. And then while that chant is still going on, the curtains open, the priest comes out, now he's dressed in white, he has definitively laid aside the dark vestments of, of Lent, which he will not touch again until probably long after Pentecost. 
and throws the flowers all over the place, um, which uh, is a wonderful thing that we do here, which we didn't do in Rome. But the one thing which we don't have in that liturgy yet, we don't have the Paschal Tropar, Christ is risen from the dead by death conquering death, which we sang how many, what, 14 times today. We don't do that yet. That doesn't come until the next day, Easter itself, when we say Christ is risen from the dead. So these things were meant to be taken as a pair. And then the gospel, which is the whole chapter, uh, the whole of the last chapter of St. Matthew 28, um, is first the women go to the tomb and meet the angel. Then they meet Christ himself, and he sends them to go preach to the apostles and tell them that he's written. Then we have the account of setting the guards at the tomb. And then last, we have the passage, which is often referred to as the Great Commission, where Christ says, go forth and baptize all nations, making disciples of them, and so. Um, and, and so that, of course, was chosen because that is the liturgy of baptism par excellence. It's not the only one, which is an important thing. So um, since at the vigil we state what it is we are sort of looking forward to on Easter Sunday, the reason why we read the beginning of St. John's Gospel on Easter itself is to say, why is this important? So, and what we are telling is because the word was God, the word was made flesh in order to save the flesh. And it's God himself, no less and no other, who is the savior of the human race, who is joined to the human race, who takes so much interest in the welfare and eternal salvation of the human race that he actually joins it. So... Um, and therefore also that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament says over and over again, God is our salvation in a thousand different ways, not some secondary being that he created, but God himself is our salvation. So, um, and, and there were many ancient heresies, um, they all have very complicated names, Delsitism, Gnosticism, etc., which denied that the body, the flesh of man, can be saved, and then, after those were mostly defeated, we have a series of what we call the Christological controversies, all of which, and, and these, these controversies were very much more present in the East, where the Byzantine tradition was formed, than in the West. Um, there's a very famous and important bishop of the fourth century called Hilary of Poitiers, who said, well, I, I was a bishop for 20 years before I ever heard of the Council of Nicaea. So, um, but in the East, of course, these things were you know, very present to every aspect of the life of the church. And what they all center around is this one point, that it is God himself who is the salvation of man. And in our cycle of, of hymns that we sing at Orthros, one of the texts which actually was pleasantly surprised was also cited in the Ambo prayer for the paralytic um, today, you came forth from a, virgin, from a virgin, not as an ambassador, nor as an angel, but as the Lord himself incarnate and save the whole of me. Amen. And since the resurrection is the culmination of the salvation of our entire nature, body, and soul, this is why we read this text about who it is that is performing our salvation on the night early morning that he actually performed it. And so, um, and so when St. John says in verse 16 of the first chapter, 
we have all received of his fullness and grace for grace. This fullness is the totality of the salvation which we are proclaiming in the resurrection. So the gospel then also of Easter uh, concludes by saying um, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And this uh, is echoing a teaching of St. Paul that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is a really important thing that we'll come back to uh, fairly soon. So um, the epistle that goes with that is not one of the innumerable places where one of the epistles talks about the resurrection, but rather the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, which also, of course, refers to the resurrection. Um, because this is the point at which we show how the Great Commission to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is fulfilled. It is fulfilled within the church. And here you see you know, the, the incredible wisdom of the fathers who, who put all these things together because they understand we, have, you know, we are surrounded by churches. And you know, I don't say this is an attack on them, but we are surrounded by churches of the sort of originated with the Protestant Reformation that fundamentally believe we don't really need the church to mediate salvation for us. We have everything that we need in the Bible. So, you know, the church is a useful gathering. We don't really need the church. So the very first thing that we read together with this proclamation of the resurrection, uh, with the proclamation of, of who is doing the rising, is a statement that, yes, it's the church that gives all of this to us, and it is the church through which all of this is mediated to us. So, um, Now, that being said, right, it is also the case that on Easter we have the gospel at Vespers. Easter is the only feast day in the Byzantine Rite where you have a gospel at Vespers. There are other occasions where you have gospels, but they're not feasts. So we read the beginning of the first part of the Gospel of Saint, uh, about St. Thomas, and then the full text of that Gospel is read the following Sunday. So the church gives us this beautiful way of sort of living out the moments of Christ's resurrection. We read them as they happen, when they happen. So we read on the evening of Easter, we read about what happened on the evening of the day of the resurrection. And then eight days later, we read about what happened eight days later. And then the Byzantine Rite does a thing which is not part of historical tradition of any of the Western Rites, which we have a third Sunday dedicated to the resurrection, which is the Sunday of the Myrrh-Bearers. And, so, and there's a really beautiful way that the Byzantine Rite shows us how we're sort of now we're kind of capping off and moving on to something different. On um, Holy Saturday at the famous Jerusalem Matins, which is of course one of the most beautiful ceremonies like of, well, of every Christian liturgy known to man, um, we have the, at the very beginning of these three troparia, and one of them is the very famous one about the noble Joseph. The noble Joseph took down from the cross thy spotless body, and when he had wrapped it in a clean shroud with spices, he laid it for burial in a new, uh, in a new sepulcher, a new tomb. Then we have the second one, when thou went down to death, O immortal life, then did thou slay Hades by the brightness of the Godhead, and when thou raised up the dead from another word, all the powers of heaven cried out, Christ our God, giver of life, glory to thee. And then the third one, the angel stood by the tomb and cried to the myrrh-bearing women, myrrh is fitting for the dead, but Christ has been shown free from corruption. So that's Holy Saturday morning. Now, 
on the Sunday of the myrrh bearers, same troparia, but the order of the first two is changed. So first, when thou went down to death, O immortal life, then didst thou slay Hades by the brightness of the Godhead, and when thou raised up uh, from the dead, raised up the dead from the netherworld, all the powers of heaven cried out, Christ our God, the giver of life, glory to thee. Then the noble Joseph took down from the cross thy spotless body, and when he had wrapped it in a clean shroud with spices, he laid it for burial in a new sepulchre. And then extra words are added to it, but thou didst rise on the third day, O Lord, granting great mercy to the world. And then the third one, the angel stood by the tomb and cried to the myrrh-bearing woman, myrrh is free, fitting for the dead, but Christ has been shown free from corruption. And we add, but cry out, the Lord is risen, granting great mercy to the world. So those kind of form the bookends, Holy Saturday to the Sunday of the myrrh-bearers of the first phase of Easter, which is all about the proclamation of the resurrection and all about the witnesses to the resurrection. So now, then the church shifts gears because now we have the next three Sundays. We've got three that are explicitly dedicated to the resurrection. Now we have the paralytic, John chapter five, the Samaritan woman, John chapter four, and then the blind man, John chapter 9. Um, and the interesting thing about this is this really kind of crazy thing that the, those three Gospels appear in that same order with the first two switched in the historical Roman rite. Totally different context. But it's a pretty safe bet whenever you have anything that's in the Byzantine and Roman rites, it's because it's, it depends on some foundation that is much, much, much older, like going back into the fourth, third, second century. So, um, so the thing to bear in mind about this is that Pentecost is also a feast of baptism. Um, one of the things the church fathers often talk about that, this was, this was kind of a question in the ancient world, well, which day should we be doing baptisms? And we have these two letters of very early popes where some bishop writes and said, well, which day should I be doing, doing baptism? And, and the pope writes back and says, um, so Easter, obviously, and Pentecost, because on the first Pentecost, St. Peter baptized 3,000 people. So do like him. He's great. So, um, so it's important to keep this in mind that Pentecost is a baptismal feast. And what these three Sundays are doing is then leading up to the Feast of Pentecost. All three of them have very clear references, very prominent references to water, which of course you can't baptize without water. So the paralytic is waiting to be healed at a big pool, called the Pool of Bethsaida. Christ speaks to the woman at the well and talks about the living water that springs up to eternal life. And then after he has put the mud on the eyes of the blind man, he sells him, sends him to wash in the pool of Siloam. So um, all three of these gospels also make very prominent reference to the law of Moses. And this goes back to that last verse of the Gospel of Easter, where um, it says, you know, that, that, that um, the law came through Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. So these Gospels tell us about the transition from the law of Moses to the grace of Christ. The paralytic picks up his bed and starts walking around. Um, and people say, oh, hey, it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry the bed. So, and he says, well, the guy who healed me told me that I could. So, and all of the church fathers 
understood that this is a reference to, not just as, as Father Course said, which is very true, that it is very much a reference to our liberation from sin, but it is also our reference to our liberation from the law, that we don't have to obey the law of Moses as the Jews kept it. And of course, this is a, a huge issue in the early church, because if you have to become an observant Jew in order to become a Christian, for the adult males, there's a little problem there. It involves some surgery, which is a very significant procedure to undergo in a world that does not have anesthetics or antiseptics. So, you know, the church understood that, yeah, this is, this is a non-starter. So, um, then remember that the Samaritan woman, which is the next gospel we'll have uh, next Sunday, the Samaritans are a sort of heretical sect of Judaism. Um, and the Jews would not associate with them, which is also we'll hear in the gospel. So the, the, the Greek word is sunkrontai. The Jews do not have any dealings with them. They will not make any, have nothing to do uh, with these people because they have a completely different understanding and interpretation of the law of Moses. But nevertheless, they are the ones who receive the revelation of the prophet who is foretold in the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. In John's gospel, the first person that Christ says, I am the Messiah to, is that woman. So, and then you have the paralytic, uh, the, 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 the blind man, and um, again, Christ heals him, and the Pharisees say, well, that guy can't be of God because he performed this act of healing on the Sabbath in violation of the law. Um, and so you have the, most of that passage is actually taken up with the disputation of what this means about this guy. Um, and um, so in the end, of course, you know, when Christ meets the blind man again at the end, he says, do you believe in the Son of God, he says, who is he, Lord? It is he whom you are speaking to. And so, and then the, the paralytic falls down in front of him. So the change of order, putting the paralytic from chapter five before the Samaritan woman in chapter four is designed to show the way this sort of happens and, 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 and underscore this, why um, this transition away from the law, because first of all, the pool where the paralytic is hanging out is in Jerusalem, which is the city that is made holy by the presence of the temple, which is the center of where the Jewish people worship under the law of Moses. And so it begins with Jesus going there for a festival of the Jews. Now, St. John doesn't say which festival, um, but the, the two most important commentators in the Eastern Church on the Gospel of John, um, St. John Chrysostom and, and St. Cyril of Alexandria, they both believe that it was Pentecost. So let's say that even if some cranky biblicist, Dr. Garland can tell you who and, 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 and why not to read him or her, um, but if some cranky biblicist comes along and says, well, that didn't really happen on Pentecost. Our tradition is formed by how the fathers understood it even if perhaps from a strictly historical point of view, they might have misunderstood it. And so Pentecost for the Jews was the feast that commemorated the giving of the law to Moses. So um, then in the Synoptic Gospels, Christ foretells that the city of Jerusalem is where the pool is. 
cities where the temple is, in the Synoptic Gospels, Christ foretells the destruction of the temple and the city. And in John's Gospel, um, after the, the cleansing of the temple, you know, it goes, this thing where he goes in and they're, they're doing all the selling of, of animals and whatnot, and so he makes a whip and you know, chases them out of it. So, Jesus, he can fight. So, um, and he proclaims, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And St. John comments and says, well, he said this about the temple of his body. And what's interesting is how in the Byzantine rite in, in, during Easter week, bright week, that passage is deliberately moved out of order so that it falls on Friday. Because it's one week after Good Friday, the day on which the temple of his body was temporarily destroyed. So you can see again how cleverly they're thinking of all these, way these things all line up together. So then Christ's prediction of the destruction of the temple is then made to the Samaritan woman. And remember, she's the recipient of, the first recipient in John of the message that he is the Messiah. Um, because the woman says to him, well, our fathers adored on the mountain. You people, Jews, say that it's Jerusalem is where we're supposed to adore. And Jesus's answer is, the hour comes when you shall adore the Father neither on this mountain, the mountain of Samaria, but uh, nor in Jerusalem. So the passage then ends by saying that many Samaritans believed in him, which tells us that once the temple is destroyed, faith in the Jewish Messiah will pass over to the non-Jewish people. The Samaritan woman represents the first of them as, as it, to the mind of the Jews, effectively a Gentile. And so, then the blind man, once Christ has put the mud on his eyes, and tells him to go and wash in a pool which is called Siloam, St. John himself, as the narrator of the gospel, explains that the word means sent. In his Greek version, the word is apestalmenos, and that apestal is related to the word apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent to proclaim the resurrection of Christ, first and foremost. I mean, obviously, they've got a lot of other stuff to tell us. But the first thing that an apostle has to tell us is Christ is risen from the dead. So um, even though the blind, so, so what, what this shows us, of course, is that so, you know, that's where the mission is going. The blind man himself is a Jew, of course, but the church fathers understood that his blindness represents the blindness of the Gentiles who are lost in idolatry. And so the apostles are then sent to the blind men, to, to the blind men of the world, to the Gentiles, the idolatrous nations. And this is why in our Byzantine tradition, we, when we talk about the, the first person who shows up as a missionary to teach people the faith, the term which we use for them is illuminator. So um, the Armenians call their first apostle St. Gregory. He's always referred to as St. Gregory the Illuminator. Cyril and Methodius are often referred to as the illuminators of the Slavic nations. So, so in the three gospels, the way they are arranged demonstrates the passage first from the temple in Jerusalem, the city where we have the pool, then the revelation of the Messiah to the apostles, and then the church represented by the apostles, the revelation of the Messiah to the, to the Gentiles, and thence to the church, um, which in the person of the apostles and their successors goes out and preaches and baptizes all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and actually, as I was putting this together, um, this, because, because it's, it's really interesting how this, this has happened to me a lot as I you know, sort of 
write and think about these things. I had like this kind of flash <laughs> as I was going on. So this has never appeared before in an article. It will eventually. But if you think about how the gospel that we read on, East, on the Easter vigil, the whole of chapter Matthew 28, if you sort of divide it into sections, there's one part of this I need to figure out. I'm not quite sure how exactly this works. But the first part, basically Matthew 28, verses 1 to 7, the women at the tomb, that is represented by the gospel of the women at the tomb, the feast on, on the Sunday of the murdering women. When Jesus says to them, fear not, but go and tell my brothers that I have risen, that corresponds to the paralytic. He's releasing them from their fear and sending them forth to go and preach the gospel. So his meeting, remember, who is he meeting with? He's meeting with a group of women. They are the ones who will then go out and you know, announce to the apostles. In the, in the Western church, there's this beautiful tradition, which I think also appears in the East, of calling Mary Magdalene the apostle of the apostles as the first one who tells the other apostles that she's risen from the dead. So the Samaritan woman is another woman who is one of the recipients of the message, and then she goes and tells, she goes back to Samaria and tells all the Samaritans, hey, I just met this guy, and he like knew everything about me. So <laughs> then you have the part where they set the guards at the tomb. So this is Matthew um, uh, 28, um, early towns, was it 11, was it 11 to 15. Um, because remember what they say. They say, so, you know, you guys, were, you left the body, yeah, where's the body? So, well, here, look, here's a bunch of money. And if anybody says anything, say, well, you know, while we were sleeping, they came and stole the body. The church fathers and the Byzantine liturgical texts talk about this a lot, where they sort of make fun of this and say, so, your witnesses were asleep. Not credible. So, and kind of like the blind man that they didn't see, they couldn't have seen because they were asleep, they didn't see what was going on when the guys came and stole the body, according to this false story. And then we have the Great Commission where Christ meets them, meets the apostles at the mountain in Galilee and tells them, go forth and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that is Pentecost, because it's at Pentecost that that mission is actually you know, put into practice, where now the apostles will go out into, uh, into all the nations. So um, I'll just conclude with one other thing about this, which I think is, is really quite amazing, which is um, the choice for the gospel of Pentecost in the Roman rite. The Roman rite tends to go for, I don't say this is a criticism, I love the Roman rite, but... Um, the Roman Rite tends to be a bit more rhetorically obvious than the Byzantine. So all this stuff that I've told you right now, the Roman Rite wouldn't, wouldn't generally do things in quite this way. Um, so in the Roman Rite, the Gospel of the Vigil of Pentecost and the feast itself are taken from John 14 because Christ is talking about the Holy Spirit and all the good things he's going to do. In the Byzantine Rite, it starts by saying, so on the last day of the festivity, this is um, John chapter 7, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So there, more water. He that believeth in me, as the scripture saith, out of his belly shall flow uh, rivers of living water. And now this he said of the Spirit which they should receive, who, those who believed in him, for as yet the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there, that's pretty uh, obvious choice. 
But then it goes on to the sort of ag, you know, sort of discussion as to, well, who is this guy? Because the Pharisees send these people to arrest Jesus. And they, they come back and they're just like, God. <laughs> Never did a man speak like this man. So, you know, they're just his presence alone. You can, you can really feel it in the text. His presence alone, they're like, like yeah, they're arresting this guy. I can't even think about this. So the Pharisee said, have you also been seduced? Um, this multitude, uh, have any of the rulers believed? That's us. Um, or the Pharisees believed him? But this multitude that does not know the law, the law of Moses, are accursed. Nice. So Nicodemus, who will be one of the witnesses to his burial, says, does our law judge a man before it knows what he does? And their answer is, oh, you're another Galilean. Galilee is the place where the apostles come from. It's the place where the apostles meet Christ on the mountain at the end of Matthew's gospel and receive the Great Commission. So why are we talking about this? Pharisees adduce as a kind of point against Nicodemus to say, oh, well, you must be a Galilean. So, like, you know, Jesus is your countryman, obviously. Those guys are your sort of special pleading um, on his behalf. Um, and then um, you also have that, but, but, but it is actually true that while Jesus comes from Nazareth, the apostles do, in fact, come from Galilee. And on the day of Pentecost, when they're all talking in all these different languages, people say, wait, aren't these guys from Galilee? So um, when Peter is, is preaching in the house of, um, of Cornelius in Acts 10, Peter notes that Christ's ministry began from Galilee. St. Paul will say later on in one of his speeches uh, in Acts 13, the witnesses to the resurrection were all men who had come from Galilee. So the Pharisees who pride themselves on the knowledge of the scriptures speak of those who do not know of the law as accursed men are shown on Pentecost to be wrong. Prophets have indeed come from Galilee. So, thank you.